Leo and a big welcome back to the Sound Museum, the music podcast that explores that personal connection we all have with the music that we listen to. I've got such an exciting episode for you this week. For the first time on the Sound Museum podcast, I've got a special guest. My friend Adrian, I've known him for over 20 years. He's a massive Culture Club fan. I'm talking massive. So today's episode is celebrating the 40th anniversary of Culture Club's second album, Colour by Numbers. Before we get started, make sure you like and subscribe to the podcast on your favourite podcast provider. That way you won't miss any future episodes. If you're using Apple Podcasts, make sure you leave me a lovely review and you can also leave some feedback on Spotify. Also, a big shout out to our followers on Deezer, Amazon and iHeart. Massive thank you for all your support. So let's bring in my good friend Adrian into the podcast as we celebrate Culture Club. Hi Adrian, welcome to the Sound Museum. Thank you so much for doing this with me. Thank you for having me, Leo. It's an, it's an absolute pleasure. You know what, though? We've been friends for, I think it is about 20 years. We became friends, and I've always known you as this huge fan of Culture Club and Boy George, and I couldn't do this episode without you, so thank you so much for doing this. I don't think I would have let you do this episode without me. I think so as well. <laughs> we are celebrating on this podcast episode the 40th anniversary of the second Culture Club album, Colour by Numbers. Let's just go back to 1983, 82 probably, when they first released their first album, Kissing to be Clever. When did you first discover Culture Club and what song drew you in? For me, it was as a five-year-old and it was listening to a lot of um, pop radio. The song that connected me to Culture Club is, I guess, the lead track off Colour by Numbers, which is Karma Chameleon. You know, in addition to that, I guess my introduction to music in general, being an only child, I kind of hung around with my cousins who were teenagers at the time. So everything that they were sort of into rubbed off on me. I can't explain exactly why Culture Club stood out because their music tastes were, you know, very eclectic. There were a lot of 60s and 50s stuff, you know, Beatles, Elvis, all of that. But then there was also the contemporary stuff of that time, which was, you know, the Eurythmics, Duran Duran. And then somewhere in there, Culture Club was there. It sounds like my introduction sort of because... Even though I'd heard, do you really want to hit me on the radio? I never got the first album on vinyl, but my first Culture Club, um, I guess, recording I bought was obviously the album Colour by Numbers. I mean, back in the 80s, you only had limited pocket money. Things were a different time. There was no internet. For me, it was... Do You Really Want to Hit Me? I really love that song. Culture Club had this amazing start. Do You Really Want to Hit Me really set things up for the band. And that was a huge hit worldwide. Number one in the UK, Australia, number two in the US. Um, Do you have fond memories of that track as well? With Do You Really Want to Hurt Me, I probably found out about that, I guess, after sort of Karma Chameleon. That was my sort of starting point with them. Let's get on to the album Colour by Numbers because it was my first album I bought from Culture Club 
And I was a huge Boy George fan. I mean, I remember collecting all the posters from the magazines and trying to copy what George was wearing and his poses. My mum, God bless her, she made me a pillowcase. She was quite into arts and crafts. So she made me this pillowcase with George's face on it. And she made that for me. So every night I go to bed with my Boy George pillow. I just loved Boy George. And that first album for me was just, I don't know, the songs, the videos, the look. I mean, there was obviously Boy George. He was the, I mean, there would be no culture club without Boy George. I mean, there was John Moss on drums, um, Roy Hay on guitar and keyboards, and Mikey Craig on bass guitar. And together they were culture club. But Boy George was such a huge part of the band. Absolutely. I think... The four of them, when they worked together, produced a magic that couldn't be replicated without each of their ingredients to it, yeah. because each of the songs has a part of, you know, the, the four creative minds as such. George's image, yeah, I mean, for a lot of it, it did overshadow what the band were doing musically. I mean, I guess a lot of critics wrote them off as being teeny bopper and lightweight because the visual image was so much stronger than what you were getting from the music but if the if the songs weren't great then they would not have been successful or they would not have had success for as long as they have had the image was so strong but they had the goods to back it up they had really strong songs and also aside from the four of them there was also i guess the touring band members people may may not know who these people are but when you hear the record you hear the saxophone. His Steve plays the saxophone. Um, Judd plays a harmonica. The amazing Helen Terry on backing vocals. They were also an important part of Culture Club behind the scenes. I think there were a lot of people that could sort of lay claim to being the fifth member of Culture Club. Well, certainly out there with the voice, you have Helen, Helen. Terry, who, yeah. who's backing vocals and harmonies added so much to the sound of that culture club we're producing alternatively you know phil pickett co-wrote karma chameleon and it's a miracle and was kind of you know when you talk about the touring band was kind of their unofficial you know musical director as well so a lot of the arrangements you hear on the record and in live settings came from phil's you know creativity or his interpretation of what Culture Club were trying to put out with their sound. Culture Club then and now have always championed amazing musicians to bring out their sound, whether it be in the studio or live. Let's move on to the album. We're going to go through track by track, Colour by Numbers, released this week on the 10th of October 1983, 40 years ago, Adrian. Can that you believe makes it? sound so old, Leo. So old. But you know what? Uh, the eighties was some amazing, was an amazing decade for music. As you said before, all the tracks were written by the band, except "Come a Chameleon" and "It's a Miracle," which is co-written with Phil, and the producer of the album, Steve Levine, won a British Award for Producer of the Year in nineteen eighty-four. And you found some old recordings, an old interview with Steve, actually it was a few years ago, and Steve talks about recording the album Colour by Numbers. So let's just first of all have a bit of a listen to Steve Levine talking about the early days 
producing culture club when i was at school the one thing i didn't want to be was in a band but i did want to make the records and so culture club was the first real success that i had as a record producer and color by numbers culture club's second album we'd already laid the foundations with kissing to be clever the first album we'd already started to develop the sound and after the success of do you really want to hurt me that gave us both the power the weight and also george's instant success from that record we had a lot more freedom when we came to make color by numbers so that really is quite a, a, an apogee of the album so we recorded the whole album in red bus studios um as did uh, gary kemp and spanner ballet and in fact that studio has been recognized with a blue plaque and last week got a blue plaque it was a very exciting time because i was in studio one with culture club and Swain and Jolly, the producers who produced Spando Ballet and also Bananarama, were in Studio 2. And so really during that period, there was myself producing Culture Club and David Grant and Jimmy the Hoover in, my stu- in Studio 1. It became my studio. And in Studio 2, you had Bananarama, Imagination and Spando Ballet. It was a very, very creative time. Well, one of the good things with the second album was we got to record it pretty much in one place. The first album was done in bits and bobs, mainly because there was no budget. And in fact, Do You Really Want to Hurt Me was one of the last tracks that we recorded, which is why, you know, it wasn't really part of the first lot of sessions. When we came to do the second album, we recorded Time, which was a standalone record in, in the UK, but added to the album in America. But we had more time on our hands, so we were able to almost be encamped in the studio, and that allows a lot more freedom. We can try more things out. So that's really why I think it became a body of work, and it really has a beginning, middle, and end. That is Steve Levine again talking about recording the album Colour by Numbers. Now, Adrian, let's move on to the first track on the album, which is Karma Chameleon. And in this next clip, Steve talks about recording Karma Chameleon in the studio. Well, this was, I guess, midway through the sessions. The very first tracks that we recorded for the Colour by Numbers album were Church of the Poison Mind and Mr. Man. I remember those very specifically. And that sort of got us going. With Karma Chameleon, it was a very interesting track the way that it developed because we had some legacy ideas from some of the other tracks and George was very keen on it not sounding like some of the other songs. So, for example, we didn't use the saxophone, we used the harmonica instead. But there's a couple of really interesting things about the track. If you listen very, very carefully, the track actually slightly speeds up towards the end. And that's because we used a drum machine for the backing track. It's got a drum machine and John playing drums on top of it. Because at the time I didn't really appreciate the difference between 4-4 and 2-4, the speed was very fast. So it meant that the track got very, very slightly fast. And I didn't appreciate that until we got near the end, which is why, if you listen very closely, the Kama 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 Chameleon backing vocals slightly speed up. needs no introduction that was Kama Chameleon track number one on the album Colour by Numbers what an amazing iconic song it is an amazing iconic song I mean George blames David Bowie for how he got into music and how he got into style and dress and all the rest of it for me I blame Karma Chameleon I think that's the one that started it all for me as far as being a culture club fan a music fan that's ground zero. It started there. Interesting story here. 
he took it to the band and they weren't too familiar. They weren't too keen on the song, calling it too country. Do you know a bit more background about the writing process of the song? Calm Chameleon was probably written, I would say, almost a good six months before that. And and where that sort of started off with was the guys were in the studio presenting ideas for what was going to be the Colour by Numbers album. And George presented these lyrics and melody, you know, to you know, to this half-written song that he had called Karma Chameleon. The guys in the band, particularly um, John and Roy, said, oh, this sounds terrible. We're going to lose all credibility if we put this out. No, there's no way we could do this one. Forget it, George. And rather than let it sort of sit aside and not do anything about it, George enlisted um, Phil Pickett to co-write it with him. So the next time the band had a meeting, George represented the song then and the guys had to sort of concede that George was onto something with it. Choosing Karma Chameleon as single number two because it was a few months after the first single, Church of the Poison Mind, George would do a thing of where he would play bits of songs that they were working on to fans that might have been camping out the studio, people that were sort of working in the studio, whether they be secretaries, cleaners, you name it. And when he played Karma Chameleon to them, they were kind of like, oh, you've got something there. That's kind of how Karma Chameleon was chosen as single number two off the album. I think now Roy and John, they probably like it. <laughs> I think they've all I think <laughs> they've all had to like it. I think they've all had to live with it. I think it's one of those songs, much like from a fan perspective, where you love it in one breath and probably hate it for being overplayed or being oversaturated in the next. But yeah, I mean, the statistics for Karma Chameleon, I mean, the second it got released, it just went crazy. It was number one in many countries, six weeks in the UK. It was the only US number one. Yeah, I mean, in the UK, it's still in the top 40 top selling singles of all time. Wow. And that's 40 years later. Of course, now we're not so much in the buying age of music, we're in the streaming age. You know, Karma Chameleons had more than 565 million streams on Spotify. And that's really only just in the sort of last 10, 15 years that Spotify has been around. If that was around back then, those numbers would be beyond anything we could imagine. Let's touch upon the stats for Karma Chameleon because they're really impressive. Released on the 5th of September 1983, um, number one in the UK for six weeks, the highest selling single in the UK in 1983, number one in the US for three weeks, number one in Australia, New Zealand, Belgium, Canada, Ireland, Netherlands, Norway, South Africa, Spain, Sweden, and Switzerland. The 7 million copies sold worldwide, um, 1.7 million copies in the UK alone, and it won the Brit Award for Best British Single in 1984. So this track is a monster. I think those stats speak for itself. It has yeah. had such a global outreach and still, you know, is something that people resonate with and love to this day. It's one of those things that pop up on so many 80s compilations. You know, when you think the 80s, Calm Chameleon's always somewhere in there when it comes to music. Its impact on the world, where it just started off as a, you know, small song in a studio which nobody really wanted to release, it's beyond anything could, anyone could imagine, really. 
Let's move on to track number two from the album, It's a Miracle. And now Steve Levine talks about recording this in the studio. Here's Steve Levine. We programmed the, the basic track and we, we put a few instruments on and we needed this extra chicka beat. And I, ca- I honestly can't remember who said, what about a washboard? It might have even been a joke. And I said, what about Derek Geiler? And they went, oh, my God, please, sir. Yeah, we saw him in the Generation game. It might have even been on fairly recently. So it takes some skill to play a washboard. So it does. So we made a call to Virgin, said, can you get Derek Geiler? So he turned up in his yachting suit and his <laughs> washboard and played washboard. And that is Derek Geiler on that thing. And he, and he went out and he, he talks exactly like the character. So we mic'd him up. And he goes, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, well. <laughs> And that's on the record. And it, does he get a credit yeah, on, on the yeah, sleeve? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Fantastic. And he's on the record. It's a miracle. 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 That was "It's a Miracle," the second track from the album Color by Numbers. Now this track is one of my favorites from the album. I love the video, the Japanese influence, George looks amazing. John's quite cute in the video as well. I've always loved It's a Miracle. Yeah, I mean It's a Miracle is definitely one of my favorite Culture Club songs as well. I think my favorite would be one of the ones later on in the album, but we'll talk about (laughs) that then. But you know, it's got a beautiful energy. The video clip, I mean, we didn't really talk about the video clip for Karma Chameleon, but It's a Miracle especially is stunning. Mm. You know, it kind of captures, you know, the history to date in that clip. So it's a little bit of everything that they'd done at that point. It's very colourful. Yeah, there's Japanese influence there. Yeah, John looks amazing. (laughs) (laughs) And for me, my favourite scene in that whole clip is the last one in there where George is absolutely surrounded by all the sort of memorabilia and the records and yes. everything. I wanted one of everything in that shot. Mm. I think I have a master collection that's close since then, but one of those things that had such a huge impact on me, it's like, wow. That was the last single from the album, the fourth single in the UK, released on the 16th of March, 1984. Number four in the UK, number five in Canada, 13 in the US and 14 here in Australia. Now, the original title of this was It's America and was written about their first time in the US. Yeah, so Culture Club, when sort of Do You Really Want to Hurt Me broke in the US, was sort of at the end of 82, early 83, and they kind of wrote that while they were on tour. So it was one of those things where it was the four of them and Phil Pickett, because he was there as part of the touring band, where they kind of wrote the song together about their sort of experience in in America. It was very much about the two two sides of America or the two ends of America. You've got New York mentioned in the first verse and sort of how it was a little bit at the time a bit seedy and unsafe. You've got the line which says guns that cross the street, you never know who you might meet. Mm. And then on the flip side, you've got Los Angeles on the other side where, you know, the second verse talks about Hollywood and the plastic smiles and all the thing about being famous and learning about Hollywood as you're experiencing it. Mm. So they so they kind of debuted the song in live shows and it did come with the original title, It's America. 
And it was suggested to them by, you know, people within their record company, managers, all that sort of thing. Well, if you do a song about America, either A, America's going to love it or hate it, and B, you've got a huge fan base back home in the UK who might be offended that you haven't written a song about them. So it was suggested they change the title and sort of the sentiment a little bit, and that's how it became It's a Miracle. All right, Adrian, let's move on to track number three on the album, Color by Numbers. This is Black Money. Do you deal in black money? 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 That is Black Money, a really soulful track on the album. George's vocals are gorgeous. Helen delivers some killer BVs on this track. I think this should have been a single myself. There were a couple of points in Culture Club's history where Black Money could have been a single. I think it was first considered as a single as a follow-up to Karma Chameleon and Victims, one out there. By that point, you know, Black Money was in their live set and probably a highlight of their live set, you know, at that point where that where it could have been a single. And then also when Culture Club sort of went their separate ways in late 86, early 87, Black Money was included on their greatest hits album this time and was slated as being a single there, you know, as far as the live video of it being on the VHS for the This Time album. It almost got to be a single and then they kind of pulled it at the last minute because they wanted to sort of focus on each of the members' post-Culture Club careers. You know, George had just put out everything I own and they wanted to sort of boost his solo recordings and career at that point. And then John had a band that he was working on called Heartbeat UK. Roy was working on a band called um, This Way Up. So Mm. Black Money kind of got shelved at the last minute. Do you think this track is about John? Ooh, most of the tracks are about John, aren't they? um, (laughs) Probably in some way. A Mm -hmm. lot of, I mean, a lot of the Culture Club lyrics are ambiguous in that they may have started out being explicitly about John. The songs get sort of tested in the studio and each band member sort of adds their bits and pieces to it. I guess the sound or the sentiment of the original track changes a little bit so Mm. black money i don't know whether it's specifically about john but you could say that let's move on to track number four changing every day Culture Club had never performed this track live. This is true. Mm. So all the other songs off um, Colour by Numbers have been performed at one point or another, you know, in live settings, and Changing Every Day hasn't. The only time it sort of got a live performance was not with all of Culture Club present. In 2014, to celebrate its 30th anniversary, um, the BBC did a special where Colour by Numbers was played with a symphony orchestra and George featured on that and he performed Changing Every Day because there were guest performers for some of the different tracks on Colour by Numbers. 
And he performed that with Eve Gallagher, who was one of his um, signings in the 90s when he had the dance label More Protein. So that's the closest we've had to Culture Club performing Changing Every Day. And someone covered this track in 2023, a jazz artist. Me, Maxine, um, is a jazz singer, and she recorded this for the Baltic Jazz Recordings label, which are based in Liverpool. And as far as I understand it, Steve Levine, as in Culture Club's original producer, is involved with this label and sort of changing every day and Colour by Numbers were turning 40 kind of suggested this track and me resonated with the lyrics and the sound of it and had you know produced this beautiful cover that came out earlier this year sometimes you get a change of pace that is a jazz artist uh nee maxine with her cover of culture clubs changing every day let's move on to track number five from the album that's the way i'm only trying to help you she's the only one who never lies that's the way we destroy baby shout it out shout it out that's the way we destroy baby Shut it out of your mind. That's the way. Yeah. That's the way. Appeared on the UK B side for Karma Chameleon. You have some interesting facts here, Adrian, because I had no idea, but George Michael once performed this track with George. I'm a big George Michael this, fan. Tell me about this. This is true. So. Mm-hmm. Back in 87, there was an AIDS benefit concert, which George Michael was sort of the headline act, but boy, George was also there. And George Michael sort of came out at the end of George's set. It's like, oh, I'd really love to, you know, one of my favourite Culture Club songs is That's the Way, Would You Do It With Me? And George is like, well, I haven't prepared it or anything, but thankfully Roy Hay was in the audience. So they pulled him up got him on the piano and the three of them performed That's The Way. I mean, the whole concert was recorded and released as a VHS, but George Michael didn't quite like how he sounded on it. So he cut it out of the broadcast and on, you know, the VHS release. Yeah, because George was quite notorious for uh, he needs to have his vocals perfect. And if it wasn't perfect or I didn't like his performance, he wouldn't, yeah. I can understand that. Yeah. So unfortunately, it's not, unless it's somewhere in a, you know, TV studio's vault or something Mm. or a production company's vault, we may never, ever get to hear that one, which is a shame. shame. It would have been been beautiful to have heard both George's dueling, like George and Helen do on the original recording of That's The Way. Another fun fact on this track, you know, as well, So on Culture Club's recent tour, I got to meet George on a number of occasions because I did the meet and greets and each night I had something, I guess, different to ask him and something different to talk about. On the last night, which was in Brisbane, I mentioned that I was recording this podcast episode with you. 
And so I quickly asked him what his thoughts were on Colour by Numbers. And he said, look, for me, it's the quintessential Culture Club album because there is something for everyone on that album. And when I asked him what his favourite track was, he kind of pondered for a second and said, that's the way was. So there's a little fact. That's the way George's favourite song, Colour by Numbers. Direct from George himself. And there'll be more um, of your, I guess, experiences um, with Culture Club and our bonus content Um, And that's coming up later on this week on the podcast. But the next track, track number six on the album, again, we've got um, a snippet of Steve Levine talking about Church of the Poison Mind and how there's a slight distortion at the end of the track. There's one thing, for example, if you listen very closely to the middle break on Church of the Poison Mind, after Helen's vocals, as it peaks, it just pushed the level so much and there's a little bit of distortion there, which in modern digital recording, that would have been easier to control. First of April 1983, the first single from the album Colour by Numbers, reaching number two in the UK, four in Australia, nine in New Zealand, and number 10 in the US. First song written for the album. It was first featured in their 1982 live shows promoting Kissing to be Clever. This is true. And so Church of the Poison Mind was written very around the time sort of Do You Really Want to Hurt Me was released when they needed to sort of work out what they were doing as a follow-up to Do You Really as a single. And Church of the Poison Mind just missed out to Time Clock of the Heart being that single. So it was one that they performed alongside all of the Kissing to Be Clever tracks long before a second album was even planned or thought of. Church of the Poison Mind, I've written on some notes here. I love the harmonica on this track. The harmonica is amazing. The whole energy of the track is amazing. And for me, it's probably my favourite Culture Club song. Sentimentally, it's the first time, it's the first song I saw them perform live in person when they toured in 2000, because I was a bit too young to have gone and seen them when they came to Australia in the 80s. So for me, that opening bar of Church of the Poison Mind, which, you know, had John drumming and then the harmonica coming in and all the rest just just takes me back to 2000 at the Metro where I saw them for the first time. The, just that energy that just came out of that stage at me where I was standing sort of like in, I guess, about second row or thereabouts. It was just like, yeah, this is it. This is what I've been waiting for at that point. The first of many, many shows, Adrian. <laughs> Shall we move on to track number seven? This is Miss Me Blind. I know you miss me. Is the third single release in the US, Miss Me Blind, released in 14th of February 1984 on Valentine's Day. 
Now, when I was doing some research for this episode, um, Jermaine Stewart, who of course had that huge hit with where they had to take her clothes off, sang BVs on the album and on this track. But there's a bit of a backstory as to how he became involved with Culture Club. Yeah, so Jermaine Stewart was touring as a backup dancer for the group Shalimar. And when they toured England or London specifically, Mikey took a shining to Jermaine and, you know, they formed a friendship. And that's how sort of Jermaine got introduced to, I guess, the rest of the band and recorded the backing vocals on Miss Me Blind. The other sort of Shalimar connection to Culture Club or Miss Me Blind in particular is Roy's guitar solo. Mm. So when it was proposed that Roy would do this guitar solo or when Roy put it across in a meeting that he, you know, that he wanted to do a guitar solo in Miss Me Blind, the others were kind of sort of dismissive on it, particularly George, where they're like, uh, it would look like that we were copying sort of Eddie Van Halen doing the guitar solo and beat it. Right. It's like, you know, what are we doing? And, you know, why would we do that? And in the end, Roy kind of recorded it on his own in the studio with the others not around. And he was kind of influenced more by the disco funk sound that Shalimar had. So between Roy's guitar solo and Jermaine Stuart being on backing vocals, there's the Shalimar connection there, and that's something they sometimes mention in their live shows now as being an influence there. I love the guitars on this track. It's got a great bridge as well. Then the drums and percussion kicks in, and I I just love this track. And John is such a great drummer, which brings me on to this next snippet from Steve Levine. He's talking about John and his drums. John had previously played with Adam and the Ants and punk band London, and they had two drummers. And he said, first of all, Steve, I don't want to have two drummers in this band. How can we do it? So I said, well, here's an idea, John. I've just bought this new thing, the Lindrum. If the Lindrum plays the backbeat, so boom, bap, boom, boom, bap, you can, on top of that, play... Oh, right, so can I go boom, bap, 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 bap? Exactly. So that gave the feel of two drummers, which is what John wanted. And if you listen to the first album... I thought you were going to join in there. I thought we were going to do like a riffing (laughs) session then. You're like, yeah. So Uh, the the first album has that very much the Burundi beat, which is the sort of sound of Bow Wow Wow, which was very prevalent then. And that's achieved by having two drum tracks. But in John's case, one drummer. So you program the first part and then we'd add the second part. As we moved forward further forward on the second album became more sophisticated the join between drum machine and real drumming was almost invisible on some songs there's absolutely no drum programming at all so victims for example 100 percent regular drums on things like karma chameleon there's both that is steve levine talking about john moss and his drumming on the album now of course miss me blind reached number five in the u.s number six in canada and was it, it was also released in Australia as well. Yeah, Australia's probably got the distinction of releasing all five Colour by Numbers singles because with its overseas release, a lot of territories didn't want to put out Victims because it was a slow song and stuff. And particularly the US wanted a song that was upbeat, so they went with Miss Me Blind. So Miss Me Blind and... Um, It's a Miracle, their video clips were kind of recorded within days of each other. So 
if you watch both clips back to back, one references the other and the other references it back. Like in Miss Me Blind, you see the board game that features in the It's a Miracle video yes. clip. And the other way around, when George is surrounded by all the culture club paraphernalia and the TV screens, at the end of It's a Miracle, you see a bit of the Miss Me Blind clip in there. And then being the last sort of single off Colour by Numbers, the end of Miss Me Blind has this bit where the Japanese temple in which Culture Club is supposed to be in are being controlled by two Japanese people and the whole temple is being destroyed by a fire and it's being put out by the guitar that Roy plays <laughs> in the clip. And they scream out some sort of hysterical phrase in Japanese which translates to the house is on fire or the house is burning, which then became the title of the next album. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot that sort of happened with Miss Me Blind. But, yeah, going back to it being single, Australia got it as the fifth single to sort of coincide with their Colouring Down Under tour in 84. And it wasn't as big a hit here as, say, the four singles which preceded it because by then everybody had had the album yeah. and the album had also been repackaged with a bonus um, poster you know, to go with the tour. So you everybody the posters was the back in the day. Oh, the <laughs> I mean, posters in vinyl, they were huge. Yes, they were. I, I, had, I, had, I had the one from Colour by Numbers up on my wall forever. It was yeah. the one, four of them, and they're sort of baseball gear and George just looking absolutely stunning there, still yes. sitting, you know, the stool in his pink outfit. I love that shot. Yeah, so Miss um, Blind, fifth single. Moving on to track number eight from the album. This is a bit of a reggae track, Mr. Man. Mr. Man, love Mr. Man. Got a part on the trigger, but he pulled it too late. Mr. Man is a pilot, Mr. Man is a fake. Mr. Man did it hungry and he's That is Mr. Man, one of the first songs written for Colour by Numbers after Church of the Poison Mind, inspired by their first visit to the US with It's a Miracle. This was released as a single in South Africa. And yeah, my fiance, Sean, is from South Africa. So I must ask him about this. <laughs> well, I, don't, I, I mean, I don't know how much of a hit it was in South Africa, but it was the only territory that I know of that had it as and put out as a single on a record. It's quite a cute song, but it's not really my favourite on the album. I think it was one that was kind of like a highlight when they performed it live. I mean, going back to the South Africa thing, I don't think they actually toured South Africa in the 80s, so not sure how or why Virgin in that country decided to put it out as a single. It's one of those rare ones that if anyone finds it in a record shop or whatever, Firstly, Rabbit. I want it. Yes. But two, it's <laughs> worth a hell of a lot of money. It's very rare. Now we're heading towards the end of the original album, Colour by Numbers. This is track number nine, Stormkeeper. <laughs> I haven't heard the song in years and when I played it the other day it was weird hearing those Asian influences on the track and the flute but at the time it was quite 
weird, but now it's just like it's it's a really nice track. It is a pretty little track. It's one that probably gets ignored, much like changing every day on side one. Kind of gets ignored. I mean, Couch Club only played it a couple of times very early in the sort of colour by numbers era of touring. And then it was kind of like ignored for the rest of it. I mean, we talked about it earlier when the BBC did the orchestra thing for the 30th anniversary. Stormkeeper wasn't performed by anybody other than the choir themselves. So it's one that kind of hides away from the rest of the album. And Mm. I mean, again, you know, talking about the sort of, I guess, Asian influence, I would imagine that would be, you know, George and the guys being influenced by when they first toured Japan. Correct. Lyrically, yeah, it's probably another one about John. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, it's a cute little song. Now we've reached the end of the album, the original album, and this is track number ten. It's a stunning track. This is Victims. The victims we know so well. They shine in your eyes when they kiss and tear. Strange places we never see, but you're always like a ghost in my dream And I keep on telling you Please don't do the things you do When you do those things For my puppet strings Have the strangest void for you What a song this is, Adrian. I adore this track. I can't you... believe the US didn't get this as a single it was clearly written about George's relationship with John. Uh, it, it was was the third single from the album in the UK and Europe, Australia and New Zealand and some other countries. Released on the 28th of November, 1983. Reached number two in Ireland, three in the UK, four in Australia and number seven in New Zealand. What an amazing track this is. Helen Terry's vocals are just sublime. It's an exquisite track all around. I mean, the instrumental started off as, I guess, a love song that Roy was writing to his newlywed wife at the time, Alison, and then was presented to the studio, you know, in the studio to the rest where they all added their, you know, special ingredients to it. Live, it's probably one of those tracks where you kind of get the essence of Culture Club bottled into one. It's like, it's a very intimate track. And if it doesn't draw you in, you're probably at the wrong show. Sets the benchmark for that's where they sound at their absolute best and their most intimate and the most sort of captivating. It re- It's one of those songs that really draws you in. And I guess when John was in the band, because, I mean, he's not now, when John would sort of come in with the drum solo, he'd kind of leave a bit of a gap build the drama, the crowd would sort of be in anticipation and that drum solo would come in. And that was one of those key moments that sort of tied the song together. Totally. And and the video is stunning as well, directed by Godley and Cream. Yeah, one of my favourites, actually. It's it's a pretty video. George hates it, though. Oh, um, really? Was, he looks yeah, great in the video. Him, well, for him, it was three days of sitting around on a crane that wobbled like... Crazy right. Of, of course, George now hates that. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, Godley and Cream were sort of branching out from, you know, their sort of music career and going into directing. And Couch Club wanted to, at the time, put out a very sort of expensive statement clip, if you like. Mm. You know, in a way, it's quite ballsy to follow 
their biggest hit, Karma Chameleon, which was almost like a nursery rhyme with this catchy chorus, you know, upbeat, dancey, all the rest of it. And then you follow it with Victims, which doesn't have a chorus, which was nothing like anything else on the charts. Radio mm. didn't touch it and still got to number three. That just tells you that power that Culture Club had at the time and secondly with that song. That was a final track from the original album, Colour by Numbers. Um, I've got one more snippet of Steve Levine talking about being a perfectionist and talking about using studio equipment and the Lynn drum machine on Culture Club's album. I think there always comes a point where you do have to let it go. And certainly back then we didn't have everything available. So there were certain things you did have to let go. But it's fair to say that a lot of the producers in that period in the 80s, because it was a major change in technology, we did become more perfectionist because we had the tools available to us. So myself, Trevor Horn and other producers, we could look at the detail. And those records do have a lot of detail in them. I think the arrival of the Lindrum, that made a huge difference because before then, just if you look at some of the records at the end of the 70s, early 80s, they had drum machines, which are like the rhythm boxes, you know, mm. the first digital drum machine, which was the Lindrum, enabled you to create really good drum tracks. And what that did was actually make drummers more aware of rhythm and tempo. So, for example, I was so fortunate with John Moss, the drummer in Culture Club. I didn't appreciate what a great drummer he was until quite a lot later because we recorded the Lindrum and then he would put his drum track on top of it. And it just seemed seamless to me. And it was only about two months later, after we did the first sessions, I worked with another band and I said, uh, hey guys, this is how it's gonna work. And uh, it sounded like somebody throwing percussion down the stairs. It was so <laughs> out of time. In 2003, there was a reissue which happened. So everything was remastered and there were some extra tracks for us. So let's just go through the reissue from 2003. This is the first bonus track. This is a man shake. That is Manshake, the B-side to Church of a Poison Mind. On my notes here, Adrian, I can see why this didn't make the album. Very average track. Helen sounds like a badass on this track, though. Again, it's one of those songs where the combination of George and Helen's vocals just make the track. I could imagine this coming out of sort of like a really energetic studio session where they were just sort of jamming and they were just sort of trading lines and all the rest of it. And it's like, oh, to have been in that room that day when they put this song out. Yeah. I mean, the energy on it's amazing, but you know what? It probably didn't fit in with what they were trying to do with Colour by Numbers. You know, it's got a good home on, you know, being on the B side of Church of the Poison Mind because both songs have a really sort of upbeat, loud energy. Talking of B-sides, this next track, Mystery Boy, was on the B-side of the seven inch of Church of the Poison Mind. is 
Mystery Boy, also appearing on the B-side in the US for our Tumblefoya and Church of a Poison Mind. But in Japan, they tend to use tracks and ads, and this track was used to promote whiskey. Yeah, so Japan have a really big brand called Suntory Whiskey. Well, mm-hmm. Suntory is the brand, and whiskey is one of the things they do. And I'm not sure how Culture Club got involved because Mystery Boy ended up being Culture Club's first single there. So this, I mean, this song was featured in this ad. Culture Club aren't in the ad. It's sort of, the ad's sort of like 30 seconds of these two guys camping and having whiskey. You know, unlike, say, some of the other artists, you know, at the time who appeared in the ads, they didn't. And for Japan, they actually recorded Mystery Boy with hot whiskey in place of the words Mystery Boy. So it's okay. so Japan got this little unique, tr- you know, sounding track, I guess, from Culture Club. <laughs> Track number three on the reissue um, was a live version. This is Mashing Pot. That was taken from A Kiss Across the Ocean on VHS videotape back in the day. Now, when I first heard this track they covered, my mind went back to, in New Zealand, we had a girl group in the 80s called When the Cat's Away. And they did a cover of this track, which is amazing. It's probably better than this one. But here is a bit of a snippet of New Zealand girl group When the Cat's Away with Martin Pot. you've heard the culture club version and now you've heard the when the cat's away version adrian you probably prefer the culture club version right <laughs> of course <laughs> like, I'm, like i'm going to go against the come on i mean melting pot was just one of those songs that they closed out their sort of color by numbers slash a kiss across the ocean tour with it was one of George's favourite songs growing up and we, and that's why they kind of covered it. But I think it's very symbolic of what Culture Club's basic ethos was at the time where, first of all, Culture Club as a concept should never have worked. If you were trying to put mm. a band together now, you wouldn't directly go for the formula that Culture Club had because it just wouldn't work. You've got four guys who are from different, you know, different parts of London you know, George is from the south. John was, you know, brought up in Hampstead in the north. And then you got Mikey, who was sort of, you know, in Hammersmith and Roy, who was in Essex, who all come from different backgrounds, different religions. I mean, you know, John was Jewish. 
George was brought up Catholic and not sure of Roy and Mikey's religions, but but you have this absolute clash of backgrounds, personalities, sexualities. I mean, we can talk about George being gay and not being out or sort of mm. being out private but not in public at the time. His relationship with John, who I guess by today's definition would have just been sort of sexually, you know, fluid, I guess, in his sexuality, because, I mean, he didn't really define himself as being bi or gay, but there he was in a relationship with George. and For a few years. Yeah. So you've got this clash of personalities, religions, cultures, all the rest of it. They call themselves Culture Club. You have Helen Terry, who was also gay but not out and Mm. had a huge falling out with George in the 90s when he wrote his autobiography, Take It Like a Man, and sort of mentioned that she had a girlfriend just in passing. I mean, I completely glossed over it and didn't think that was an outing, but she did and stopped talking to him for many years. So, yeah. So going back to Melting Pot, it was kind of like Culture Club in a song. It was the melting pot of different cultures, races, all the stuff. And I guess what they were putting out to everybody else is that it doesn't matter who you are or where you come from, if you can relate to us in any way, enjoy our music, do so type thing. Totally. And it was the 80s, so there were no rules, there were no stylists. Everything was more organic and you could have a couple of flop albums before the successful album came. So there was that nurturing of talent. The 80s was such an amazing era for music and Culture Club defined the 80s. Let's move on to a track which is called Coloured by Numbers, which is not on the album Coloured by Numbers, but appears on the reissue. This is Coloured by Numbers. on the B-side of Victims and Miss Me Blind in the US. Why wasn't this track on the album when it was called Colour by Numbers? That's a really strange one because, I mean, Kissing to be Clever was also named after a song which didn't make it onto Kissing to be Clever. Yeah. And and they kind of continued that tradition after Colour by Numbers when there was a song called From Luxury to Heartache which didn't end up on their From Luxury to Heartache album. So who knows? But... It's one of those, I think, you know, I mentioned it before with Manshake. I can sort of see this song being one of those that they sort of jammed with in the studio and thought, oh, this doesn't really fit into what we're doing with the album. So we'll still record it, but we won't use it until we need to type thing. I guess Colour by Numbers was, you know, one of those tracks where it helped, you know, sell Victims as a single. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, there was a song not on the album that you could also buy. Australia was lucky enough to get it twice as a B-side when we had it on Victims as well as Miss Me Blind when that was a single later on. Mm. The um, fifth track on the reissue is called Romance Revisited and this is the orchestral version of Victims. Let's take a quick listen to that. Stunning version of Victims, 
called Romance Revisited appears on the 12-inch single only. Victims is a stunning track, but this version is just gorgeous, hey? It's absolutely beautiful, and it just goes to show what, at that point, what accomplished songwriters' culture club were, that, you know, they could bring out an instrumental of that scope, you know, a year into, a year and a half into their sort of being together, being able to coordinate an orchestra to, you know, interpret your work when really the guys were still all in their sort of early to mid-twenties. It's kind of an amazing feat. It doesn't really happen much these days when you have this beautiful orchestra recording your track, but that version is absolutely stunning. And that's the final track on the reissue from 2003. There's some other B-sides which you've also uncovered for us, Adrian. This one is the B-side to It's a Miracle. It is the live track of Love Twist from the A Kiss Across the Ocean VHS. Um, Love Twist is a track that was on Kissing to be Clever. Mm-hmm. And it was also, and in its original recorded form, was the B-side to Culture Club's first single, White Boy. It's one that they played live pretty much up until the end of the sort of like a kiss across the ocean tour you know it's got it's got a good energy about it and is one which i guess on stage allowed george to dance a bit and yeah sort of do a little bit of rapping and toasting in the middle because the i mean the album version or the single version originally had um captain crucial doing some jamaican toasting in the middle really many remixes on this album were well, from the singles anyway but there was one it was a mashup of miss me blind and it's a miracle called the u.s extended mix let's take a quick listen to that mix now was mixed by Steve Levine and John Moss, was on the 12-inch for Miss Me Blind in the US and Canada, and on the 12-inch for It's a Miracle Everywhere Else. Bit of a mashup mega mix, but there wasn't many remixes of the tracks back in the day. Culture Club weren't really one of those bands that did extended mixes. So when they did, I guess it was something special, and Miss Me Blind, the Miss Me Blind It's a Miracle multi-mix as it was called for the UK and Aussie release I guess was one of those special moments again a mix that you wouldn't find necessarily on the albums till much later when things were reissued or put on 12-inch compilations and that sort of thing so it was I guess it was just another tool to buy the single when people already had the songs on the album I mean the only other 12-inch version of anything that was sort of in the Colour by Numbers era was the 12-inch version of um, I'll Tumble For You, which was the B-side of Karma Chameleon's 12-inch. Mm. And that happened because I'll Tumble For You came out as a single in the US before Karma Chameleon did in the UK. 
and a lot of fans in the UK particularly were going out and spending a lot of money trying to get the import 12 inch to get that mix so they thought they would help their fans out by putting that as the 12 inch on there so Adrian we have gone through the color by numbers original album and the reissue and some b-sides as well now in your collection there's quite a lot of Culture Club memorabilia from back in the day, including a 12-inch picture disc with the Culture Club board game. Yeah, so as you would know from the It's a Miracle video clip, it is set to a board game, yeah. which is sort of like a cross with, I guess, Monopoly and their biography to date, like their chronology to date at that point. So Culture Club was so big at the time that they had licensed a copy of this board game as a picture disc. There's no music on this picture disc. It's just a booklet of quotes and photos and posters, one of each of them. And yeah, it's a cool little addition to a Culture Club collection. And we'll post some pictures of that on the socials as well. So people can have a look at that because that's quite a cool thing to have. It is. And yeah. it's, I mean, it's different. I mean, at different points, I've probably had that sort of hooked up on the wall and stuff as well, because mm. like, oh, it's so cool seeing all the little bits on the board game, because you don't really see it all in the video clip. You see some of it. Yeah. You see some of it. They walk past a couple of squares, that sort of thing. Artistically, it's quite pretty. <laughs> um, we mentioned before a few tracks were from the A Kiss Across the Ocean live video, which came yeah. out back in the day on VHS videotape. But um, this is a live video recorded in on the Christmas leg of the 1983 tour of the Colour by Numbers UK tour. Kiss Across the Ocean, like you said, was recorded at the end of their 83 UK Colour by Numbers tour. So calling it a kiss across the ocean when that was a sort of next leg of the tour was a little bit preemptive there. Mm. But they, so over the last two or three shows that they did in the UK at Christmas time, they had cameras in there to record the audio and the video for this video release. And they spent probably a good month or two after Christmas putting that together, like remixing all the sound. So what you heard on the VHS was super crystal clear and and perfect. And yeah, I mean, that's another testament to just how popular Culture Club were at the time that on top of, you know, a million selling album, two or three hit singles at that point off Colour by Numbers, that they were already putting out a live video. And that was quite a thing back in the day. There was, there was always artists doing um, like video compilations and, and and live videos and videos of the video clips and stuff. So there was a thing back in the 80s. Also a thing back in the 80s was the official biography or um, I, I remember getting quite a few of the annuals, those hardcover books you get. But there was a culture club a, a official biography called When Cameras Go Crazy I've never seen this one. I must have missed that back in New Zealand. <laughs> it's a great little sort of visual autobiography, if you like. There's a little bit about each of the four of them, like how they grew up, lots of quotes from George in there and lots of sort of photos, lots of um, drawings from fans that were sent in. There's like galleries of some of the magazine covers they'd been on, a couple of sort of 
snide reviews when um do you really came out and when they were on top, first on top of the pops where it's kind of like what is that we saw you know is it mr or miss weirdo and mm-hmm. t- things like that and that sort of came out again sort of that in that gap when color by numbers was released and they were sort of at peak popularity so there was a lot to collect culture club wise i guess it'd be the equivalent now of you know, Kylie putting 27,000 versions of tension out or. I touched on that on last week's episode, um, our Kylie tension episode. If you haven't um, listened to that, make sure you check that out on your favourite podcast provider. In 2014, George performed a 30th anniversary celebration with the BBC Orchestra. Now we'll post the links on the show notes um, for the YouTube videos, but this was a really special concert. It was. I mean, the BBC at the time was sort of, you know, highlighting various albums and it just so happened that Culture Club's Colour by Numbers turned 30 around the time that they were doing this series, which I think was called Sounds of the 80s. George teamed up with an orchestra and they they reimagined all the Culture Club songs to fit an orchestral setting. And George performed on a handful of the songs from there, but he also opened it up to other people to interpret those songs. So you had people like John Grant, Holly Cook, um, Jimmy Somerville came in as a guest artist at the end and did Do You Really Want to Hurt Me? Because they just sort of tied it up with a couple of hits at the end. Um, Eve Gallagher was there, who was one of George's signings to More Protein, which was his dance label in the 90s, and doing the... The Helen sounds, I guess, for things like That's The Way was Z, who was George's backing vocalist for much of the 90s and everything up until the sort of mid-10s. You, you mentioned like. Helen just then and yeah. listen to this album again because uh, every time I, I play Culture Club, it's always the best of compilation. But recently I, I've been playing this album in preparation for this episode Helen's backing vocals on this album are just insane. They're fantastic. When was the last time Helen performed with Culture Club? Do you ever think they would work together again in the future, perhaps? Is that a possibility? It's a never say never, but probably highly unlikely. So Helen sort of branched out into doing her own solo music in 84 where she wanted to i guess control her own destiny if you like rather than just being a backup singer for culture club so her last dates with culture club was actually their 84 australian tour wow she i mean she did work on a few of the songs on waking up with the house on fire in the studio because that was all around the same time that roy and george were helping her out on her early solo material She's done bits and pieces, I guess, for Culture Club and George in the studio from then on till probably the mid-90s. So she was on um, Culture Club's last album of of the 80s from Luxury to Heartache and featured on a couple of um, George solo tracks off his first, you know, few solo albums. Um, Worked with Culture Club on a reunion which didn't work at the end of the 80s. In the early to mid-90s, she got disillusioned by the music industry and kind of went off and did other things. She became a TV producer. 
um, famously producing things like the Brit Awards for many years for the production company, which then licensed it to whichever network was screening it. Mm. And the last time she sort of popped up on a music credit as far as doing backing vocals, and I'm not exactly sure where she features in it, is the Scissor Sisters song Any Which Way. Wow, Which also okay. features highly oddly. Yeah, so I'm not sure where or how she recorded, but, you know, recorded whatever her bits were for that song or for that album. But that was the last time Helen's been sort of on record, I guess. Okay. But she doesn't really do music anymore. And anytime it's been sort of suggested to her, oh, it'd be great to see you on something or whatever, she said, oh, that's long gone. She kind of keeps She's very moved on. Private yeah. Now. Yeah. In 2015, we've been playing snippets through this episode from Steve Levine. He did a radio show. He talked about Colour by Numbers. I've got two more clips to play you. This first one is George in the studio, the process of George in the studio and uh, the fight that Steve recorded. And also Steve's take on George pre-drugs. Let's take a listen. George's work method had changed very little over the years. Generally speaking, he would sing the song to himself a cappella, so he'd pretty much have the melody in his head and most of the words. Normally it would be, say, the chorus and a couple of very poignant verse lyrics. So generally speaking, he would sing the song to us in the control room. Roy would very often either accompany him with a piano or a guitar just to get the basic chord structure, yeah. and then they'd practices as a band and the thing is it's really worth remembering they were a fantastic live band people forget how good they were live i went to one of their gigs at the lyceum and the reviews were just fantastic the dynamic in the band was such that there was a little bit of jamming but it did often lead to and for those that are interesting to listen to part one of the documentary there is one particular part where the studio session explodes into a, a massive argument uh, and we did actually end up capturing that because what I used to do was record those jam sessions just in case there was a thing that people forget. Yes. What I did, in fact, record was an argument, which is, you know, there forever. It was well before mm. George's struggle. In fact, George was so anti-drugs and anti-drinking that on one particular occasion, when we were doing the horns on It's a Miracle... One of the trumpet players decided he was going to have a little bit of a smoke. Okay. And in those days, you could smoke in the studios. And George came in and went, what's that smell? And just really went off on one. Wow. He, he was that strict about it. So he was very anti-drink, anti-drugs, and was very clean living. And it was only well past even the third album that things started to go. So that was probably another year and a bit before things started to slip away. And really, that demise documents his relationship with john as john and george's relationship disappeared yeah so george was surrounded by other people and that had a big effect on his life but during the recording sessions it was very hard work there were times that it was very stressful but we'd got most of the really bad stress out on the first record there were times yeah because you know, oh, they say the tricky second album but it was a kind of it not, was a coming together the second album because yeah. we had the knowledge we had the hubris of youth we were able to just say you know this is what we want to do and at that time virgin was still a very small record company and to a degree let us get on with it that is steve levine from a radio show in 2015 some quite interesting comments from steve there very much i mean 
you know, we talked about it earlier in the episode where we were like, who could be the fifth member of Culture Club? Because there are a lot of people vying for it. I think, you know, when it comes to sort of the first three albums, I think Steve Levine's probably the vital ingredient there as far as, I mean, as their producer, you know, shaped their sound and put it out there as to what they were like. And I guess he was also privy to all the sort of studio secrets as to how they constructed all these songs. And along with that, all the arguments they had, because for as harmonious as they may have appeared in press conferences or on stage or video clips or wherever you may have seen Culture Club, behind the scenes, they also had very good arguments and used to quite lay into each other. I mean, George detailed in Take It Like a Man the amount of fights that he used to have with John. I mean, and that was just within a relationship sense. But there were a lot of sort of egos and insecurities and all of that sort of stuff, which fueled all of them being very snippy and attacking each other where they could. <laughs> because you mentioned before that uh, the four guys in Culture Club were all very different. So it comes as no surprise that there were a bit of fights and there were, was a bit of biff going on. Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me, knowing that they come from different backgrounds and different parts of the country. And it's the same old thing when you have a girl band and you're never going to have a perfect girl band with no fights. It's not going to happen. Do you know what, though? Even best friends have arguments sometimes. So, So kind of put themselves together because they have this common interest, which is music. Each of them are going to have their different approaches to how they create their music, how they record it, how they produce it, how they put it out, and how they want it seen by the world, essentially. So, yeah, Culture Club in the studios always been an interesting thing because they've all got very different ideas. Steve teamed up with George in 2020. They did a Twitter listening party for Colour by Numbers. We'll post the link again in the show notes for the Twitter feed of the listening party. I must have missed this one. I I didn't I didn't catch this one. Any goss from that Twitter session? I I, I woke up at stupid o'clock to do the live listening party. Right. I can't remember what time it was in Australia when or in Melbourne when they were doing it, but it was quiet. And I remember trying to sort of post questions while questions as tweets to George as well as Steve while it was going on to see if, you know, they would give some sort of like, I guess, the insight that I wanted. But Steve's approach was very, okay, and this is how we recorded this and this is what we did in the studio, blah, blah, blah. George's stuff was very anecdotal and very sort of whimsical and quite funny. You know, he'd talk about personalities, he'd talk about John or something they referred to a song as or there was sort of these very different insights and then but it was a very interesting thing and they kind of the only thing I wished was that they went into all the sort of bonus tracks like we've done with this episode because it would have been interesting to have heard George's take on more of the b-sides and things we never really hear about they kind of stopped at victims and then George wanted to talk about Manshake but they'd already said oh no we're done thanks everyone but it was a it was a fun little sort of collective here's me listening to color by numbers at the same time george's and the same time steve levine is and who knows how many other fans or people who may have played on the album or had some other connection to it all mm. listening to it at the same time and tweeting about it it was fun color by numbers was such 
a massive album for Culture Club. It is their best-selling album to date. Uh, number one in Australia, New Zealand, UK, Canada, and Japan. In the US, it reached number two and was kept off number one by Michael Jackson's Thriller. Look, to even be in the same sentence as the biggest selling album of all time, you know what? Culture Club can be number two for that. That's brilliant. And it was also top five in in many European countries as well, um, selling over 10 million copies worldwide. It won two Brits in 1983 for Best British Breakthrough Act and Best British Group. And in 1984, they won the Grammy Award, the only Grammy for Best New Artist. And this is that acceptance speech. Grammy! (laughs) First of all, thank you very much to Tony and Abby Gordon and Gene at Wedge Music. Thank you all very much. And also to Epic Records in America, Susan Bland and everybody there. And also to Virgin Records in London, Ronnie Gurr (laughs) and Simon. (laughs) And to the band. (laughs) Thank you, America. You've got got taste, stuff. You know, a good drag for you when you see one. That is Boy George accepting the Grammy for Best New Artist for Culture Club. What a great speech that was. Oh, it's fantastic, isn't it? I love that I mean, one. Th- I mean, think about it. 40 years ago, people in the mainstream, you know, there was no RuPaul's Drag Race. There was nothing where drag queens or drag was a mainstream thing or concept. And, you know, here was George where people were like, is he a boy? Is he a girl? Is he gay? Is he straight? Is he bisexual? And he just put out this throwaway comment about America knowing a good drag queen when they see one. I don't really see George as a drag queen. I didn't then. I don't really see it now. But a lot of people took that very cheeky, flippant comment way too Mm. seriously. And a lot of America got quite offended by it. Mm. So that so that gives you an idea of what the times were like at that time. Oh, totally. It was, a, it was a different time. But, I mean, having someone like George in the public eye, I don't want to say persona, but his image was so out there. For At the time, as I said, it was the 80s. It was a very diff- different time. It was quite ballsy. It was quite a bold move to have this larger-than-life figure as the lead singer of this band with three other guys. It was very weird, but it worked so well because the songs were amazing. The songs were amazing. The image was striking. The marketing for them was brilliant. You know, when people think of the 80s, you think of neon. You think of these bold, colourful things, but most most homes were not those sorts of colours and stuff. It was bands like Culture Club who used, let's use it as a pun, every single colour of the rainbow in their artwork and imagery and mm. all of that sort of stuff to such great effect. You know, George sort of sums it up these days, you know, with a really amazing soundbite where he says, the most political thing you can be is yourself. And I think, you know, he speaks from experience with that because... All he was doing was just being himself. He changed his image because he wanted to. You know, every album or every single or video, you know, had a different hairstyle or a different way of clothing or makeup or whatever, you know, with him and also with how he styled the band. And it was just them being themselves. It was them reacting to whatever they were going through. 
certainly beats the 80s one where he said he'd rather have a cup of tea to sex. Yes, <laughs> I love that quote. Just finishing off with this episode, um, celebrating the 40th anniversary of Hello by Numbers, Culture Club have released six studio albums, 1982 Kissing to be Clever, Colored by Numbers, of course, Waking Up with the House on Fire in 84, 86 From Luxury to Heartache, 1999 Don't Mind If I Do, and 2018's Life. The band have sold over 50 million units worldwide, so nothing to be sneezed at. When can we expect a new Culture Club album? Obviously, John's left the band. There's now George, Mikey, and Roy. Do you think there is is plans to do a new album as a three-piece? I would say the short answer to that is yes. I think some of the material that they've been premiering in their live shows is right up there with the hits as far as being really good. They've had a couple of songs feature on movie soundtracks. A song called We Are Gathered Here Today was the title track of a film that came out not in Australia, it was just in the US on streaming, which was, um, which sort of came out towards the end of COVID. So it's about kind of like what we're doing, Leo, we're sort of corresponding via Zoom, where mm. a lot of this film was about someone who had COVID and their sort of family reacting via Zoom chats and all of that sort of stuff. Okay. And the end credits is this song called We Are Gathered Here Today. We are gathered here today And still I feel I'm on my own The weight of expectation on my shoulder As these regrets are getting They recently did a song called Angel of Mercy, which was in the Australian tour dates recently, which was in a Mel Gibson film. Again, it's been released overseas, but not here. is out and about it's sort of there but it isn't it hasn't quite formed yet into an album um i mean we've just mentioned briefly that there was a sort of thing with john and you know there was sort of like a legal case there which i think sort of prevented them releasing anything as culture club until that got resolved right so now that that's out of the way and really over the last three or four years they've had a good sort of stash of songs which they've been performing live it shouldn't take more than, I guess, a few studio sessions to put those down to record or to a recording, a studio recording, and put those out. Fingers crossed. You know, <laughs> oh, absolutely, fingers crossed. But it's a tough one. You know, Culture Club's not, you know, Taylor Swift or Ed Sheeran or Adele or, you know, somebody of that sort of level at the moment where an album by them would necessarily set charts on fire or all that sort of stuff. So... What do you do when you're, you know, I hate this term, a heritage band or a legacy band, you know, trying to put new material out? And what a legacy. 
you know, other than the hardcore fans, how do you get out to the population, you know, the general mainstream population that, yeah. hey, we're still making new music and you can buy it or stream it? This episode has been so much fun. I have loved sharing my thoughts of the album with you and thank you so much for your input and your backstory because I know you, I'm a big Culture Club fan, but you are a massive Culture Club fan, so you know (laughs) 10 times more than I do. So thank you so much for joining me for this podcast episode. You're welcome, Leo. It's been an absolute pleasure. I mean, other than being a friend of yours, I'm a huge fan of Sound Museum because, as you say, you know, it's all about the emotional connection to songs. And, you know, in me talking about Culture Club, yeah, they have a huge connection to my life and have done for the past 40 years. You know, I'm honoured and touched that, you know, you chose me for this. Yeah, I mean, fandom is one of those things where it comes in so many different shapes. Yeah, I've been to many concerts. I have a big collection. Yes, I have a website and the, you know, for people, you know, who let's play the website because I know that you, you do have a website. Just give that a quick plug. Yes, a little touch of, you know, shameless self promo here. So I run a site called Cyber Chameleon, mostly active on Facebook. So if you search it on that, you know, there's a lot of what's out at the moment type thing, like any of the news reports and things. There is a website component to it which is cyberchameleon.com which isn't updated as much so yeah grab me mostly on you know facebook or insta or even twitter occasionally so we'll post the links on the show notes so you can keep track of adrian's great website cyber chameleon on the web and also on social media as well clever numbers 40th anniversary of this amazing album Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. And of course, make sure you keep an eye out our social media. This week, uh, we'll be posting heaps of photos and videos across all our socials. And Adrian's given me some stuff from his personal collection as well. So um, expect heaps of photos and things on our socials. Some things you may have never seen before. So I really hope you enjoy going through our socials this week as we celebrate Culture Club's 40th anniversary of their second album, Colour by Numbers. You'll be back later on this week for a bonus episode. We're going to talk about your adventures with Culture Club in Australia, your appearance with George on Australian TV. It's just mental, isn't it? (laughs) It's just it does not stop and we're also going to talk about the situation with john um he left the band and also george's upcoming autobiography karma so all that and more coming up on this week's bonus episode which you can catch on your favorite podcast provider later on this week thanks adrian thank you leo (music) 